Welcome to Ship Out Loud, where we amplify the voices of Hispanic leaders in STEM. My name is Alex Way, and I am the producer of the Ship Out Loud podcast. I'm usually behind the scenes instead of behind the mic, but on this podcast, I get to be your host. Today's a special episode of Ship Out Loud in partnership with my own podcast, The Epics Podcast, to announce a new series here on Ship Out Loud. I had the privilege of attending Ship's National Conference this past year in North Carolina, where I got to spend hours recording the stories of your amazing familia. I'm so excited to announce that we are going to be releasing these testimonies weekly, starting on Monday. It's such a great time with you all in North Carolina that I invited a few members to share their stories on my podcast as well. And one of those Shiptinas was none other than Emily Ann Vargas, our guest today. Emily Ann is a PhD student at the University of Southern California. Her story is one of breaking barriers and achieving success in the face of adversity. As a first-generation college graduate and an engineer from a family of Cuban immigrants, she has paved the way for future generations to follow in her footsteps. Emily Ann has also been actively involved in SHIP since 2013, serving in multiple leadership positions, including being the youngest vice chair for SHIP's national board of directors in nearly 50 years. On this episode, we dive into her unique journey and gain insight into the importance of representation and community support in pursuing a career in STEM. So without further ado, please settle in and listen to Emily Ann Vargas speak out loud. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. I just moved to Tennessee maybe less than 24 hours ago. So currently trying to adjust to weather that is not remotely, you know, similar to Miami, Florida weather. <laughs> it's a little bit, little bit of a shock, but, it's, you know, nothing, a few blankets and a bunch of jackets can't help out with. For everyone listening, could you introduce yourself, describe yourself, what you look like and kind of where you are for those of us who can't see you? Sure. My name is Emily Ann Vargas. I'm a PhD student at the University of Southern California out in Los Angeles, California. Um, I'm doing my PhD in material science engineering, and I've been out there since uh, August of 2018. But for the holidays, uh, I'm with my family, well, previously before moving to Tennessee now, I like to say that I'm from Northern Cuba, which is commonly referred to as Miami, Florida. I grew up there since, uh, since my inception. And uh, my family's from Cuba, very big cultural influences my entire life. I like to say that Florida, especially Miami, is a very multicultural mixed pot of just different things. Um, so naturally moving to different areas, you got a little bit of a culture shock and mixtures of things that you're not necessarily used to. Um, so yeah, I grew up there for until I was 18 and then I moved to Tallahassee, Florida um, for my undergraduate degree at Florida State University. And, you know, Northern Florida and Southern Florida are two completely different different things. So that, that's where I emphasize the culture shock aspect. But yeah, so I did my undergraduate there uh, in industrial engineering. And so I was out there for about four years lived uh, across the country in multiple different places. But other than that, my research specifically is in composites. I love doing a few different things. One of my biggest passions is drawing and painting. It's kind of always interesting to me that I find that it's kind of common in a lot of engineers that they have a creative outlet and incorporate both the left and the right side of the brains. Um, and I think those are the, the best kinds of engineers. So I found it really interesting. I didn't know what engineering was growing up. And all of a sudden now I'm doing all this you know, mixed with my passions for art and drawing and seeing how they can actually project into my day-to-day -day sort of things. That's a little bit about me. Um, and yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all that. I've actually been fascinated with this idea. I've heard, I heard this concept a little while back actually as well, that the connection between being an engineer and 
the artistic side. I think so many people think that those are very opposites in in the way in that way of thinking that art and being creative and artistic is this very lack of structure way of thinking, whereas engineering and that sort of mathematical, mechanical first thinking is much more structured. Can you tell me a little bit about how those kind of fit together for you? Because it, in, in my mind, I can kind of see how it works, but I don't know how to explain it. So I, yeah, nobody in my family is an engineer, so I didn't really grow up with the structure of what engineering was. For me, what I grew up with was making something when you didn't have it or making something that was something that would pro- make your life easier or provide some form of spark of passion. So then being those influences growing up, that naturally gravitated me towards art, making something that, you know, out of these common resources or materials, whether it be a pencil or a pen or using crayons or things to make something more beautiful and something that can be admired or used in some form of way. And seeing those sort of things then getting older, I find that the best of engineers are the ones that know how to do things that aren't taught in a textbook. Because mm-hmm. that's where the the common misconception of just STEM fields is that everything is very, how you mentioned, very structured, very streamlined, and it has like instructions, protocols that are in a textbook and that you can't really modify those things at all. What's like, what's said is done, no questions asked sort of thing. But in reality, that's the beauty behind, I think, science. And then incorporating those creative aspects is questioning, making you question, well, why is that that way? Why haven't we tried it this way instead? And I like to think of a lot of just engineering, at least material science in general, it's like baking or cooking. You know, you have the instructions, you have the recipe there, and it tells you to do X, Y, Z. But you're all, but hmm, I don't really have that. So can I try using bananas instead? Or can I try throwing this in here? What will happen? We'll see what happens. So you experiment and then it might end up coming out better than the initial recipe or it comes out pretty terrible and you're all, why did I try to divert away from the recipe itself? And so I think... Having those components of, yeah, you have some aspect of structure to guide your thoughts towards a certain direction of a of a goal, but then being able to implement things that weren't necessarily the exact route that you would normally go, unconventional approaches and things that maybe somebody else had never really thought of combining together, I think is what makes that such a beautiful combination because there has been so many different things, especially from not just from the creative aspect, but also my upbringings of being very hands-on. My dad is a carpenter and remodels homes by trade. So naturally I had a tool set by the time I was six years old, a legitimate tool set, not the ones from like Toys R Us or, you know, the the plastic ones I had straight up, like legit, legit tools. (laughs) And having those influences of seeing how to make things and when you don't have them or when it's you have some like you know this would be really cool if I were to make something like that seeing those influences growing up then got really influential when I was in college of well why don't we approach this way and someone would ask well how do you know that oh this is actually something used to do with my dad or we're like laying down tiles or something and putting you know, or just doing the crown molding or something. That's actually something, maybe let's try that out here. Maybe see it would work. And that's what just the beauty behind incorporating those both, I guess, both lights together to make one that's like an, a super light almost of 
something that you may not have actually ever thought could exist. And yeah, that's I, I think what both incorporating both sides of the brain or just both of those types of perspective offer. And then that for all you know, what you've made becomes the next streamlined protocol based item. And then it's like the word that everybody must follow. And then, of course, somebody's going to challenge it later on. But that's what makes it so great that having the malleability of changing things. So it's not just like a rock is a rock. I mean, you can make that rock something completely different. Having those perspectives really, really do change how you think about things. I love that because... My son, both my sons watch this YouTuber, Mark Rober, who's a former NASA engineer and um, does lots of, you know, encouraging kids into engineering and science thinking. And one of the things that I actually heard him on a podcast recently, and he was saying that the thing he loves about being an engineer is you can think of something that doesn't exist and you can make it exist. So mm-hmm. kind of down to that. And he he basically just considered that a superpower and then couldn't understand why you'd want to do anything else. And I thought that was a really beautiful way of looking at it because that's what it is. If you boil engineering down to that, it, and, you, and you said something very similar to this, made me think of it, which is you can just think of something and figure out how to make it. And mm-hmm. that is really cool. And, and I don't necessarily think that way all the time, but I can relate to that thinking because I'm a very big picture thinker. And so I might not be able to think of like how to get to the next step, but like I can relate to the idea of like, this doesn't exist, but this should exist. And I think that's a very, it's a very cool way to, you know, change the world and impact the world. And we don't think, we don't think of engineering necessarily that way, but we should, because this is exactly what it's doing. It's, you know, engineering has changed our whole lives. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't be able to have this podcast right now had engineering not existed. <laughs> because imagine, you know, people were using what pigeon carrier pigeons and smoke signals at some point to communicate with one another. Now here we are having an interface that we could see one another and have crisp audio and be able to record this versus having somebody transcribe it on the chisel and rock, you know, choose right. a chisel and rock kind of thing. So it's crazy <laughs> how things that you might take for granted, somebody thought so much about that thing and made it happen. Especially as a materials person, you look at everything so different. You're like, wow, somebody spent probably like 60 years of their lives discovering this one thing that now we use on a day-to-day basis, which I, I mean, I've met people that have spent 60 plus years of their life just studying one thing because they believed in it and they wanted that breakthrough. They knew the breakthrough was going to happen and it did. It did. And sure enough, they become you know, super well-known in their fields, Nobel laureates, all that jazz. But yeah, it's it's crazy to think about how everything was thought about so for a reason. And somebody thought about it randomly one day, whether they were in the toilet or random or like they were just you know underneath a tree and an apple hit them in the face or something. <laughs> really, really, really cool. Well, I love that we have this kind of background to start setting up a bit of your story, because I feel like I have a sense of how you're thinking about the world now. And I'm really excited to kind of look through that lens a little bit as we talk through your story. But let's talk a little bit about growing up in Miami, or as you refer to it, Northern Cuba. But can you tell me a little bit about what was the culture like there growing up? So, you know, obviously describing it as Northern Cuba, I would like to hear a little bit more about some of the the Cuban influences that you had on your childhood in that in that space. Sure. Well, like I said, both of my parents are originally from Cuba. They escaped Cuba in the 60s when the Castro regime entered. And they were one of the 
fortunate ones, some of the fortunate ones that were able to get out at that time before things got a lot worse. For me, I'm first generation American and hear these, see the influences of being an immigrant, being scared in a country that you don't know the language or don't know anybody. And I see those things that my parents brought with them and see how much the land of opportunity brought to them because my sister and me would not be, you know, with the life that we have had it not been for the sacrifices that they made. My parents both, they worked numerous jobs. My dad, well, at the time he was working multiple jobs before he ended up starting his business of being a, a carpenter, remodeling homes. My mom uh, did different sort of uh, jobs. Both of my parents don't have college degrees. Both me and my sister were the first two to graduate from college in our family, in our entire family. So then naturally the, the, the adversities that they faced without having, you know, those sort of degrees and also those opportunities present were what molded my upbringings. For us though, I never felt like we were poor. Um, because we always, my dad, like me talking earlier about when we didn't have something, my dad would make it or find, we would find a way to go around it to have the same resource or to have those same benefits of something else, for instance. Um, so I never felt like I had that. It, looking back, I, I see that, wow, my parents did struggle for certain things. We have more respect and understand that, uh, looking back at it that we idolized, you know, those people and then realized they're human too. And they had those struggles. But again, I never really felt felt those things, which I, I was super grateful, right? I mean, also as a, and I'm sure anybody from a Latin community or from an immigrant community knows that you're constantly reminded about how grateful you should be for all of, after all of the sacrifices they made. That's something I grew up with a lot constantly being reminded what the value of a dollar is and that there are other people that have it a lot worse off than we did. So I had that constantly in the back of my head of, you know, that I have to be grateful about everything because look at all the sacrifices they made. And yeah, my mom, she, she was really good at math. My grandfather in Cuba was an accountant. Um, and also rolled cigars. And so then uh, seeing the, the influences from my mom, I got definitely was the learning how to calculate, you know, sales tax and things when going to the supermarket. But more importantly, my grandparents from my mom's side uh, raised me, uh, especially when both of my parents were working all the time. So they would pick me up from elementary school and I would spend most of my days there even on weekends. And so my my grandfather definitely was a big component in the math side of things alongside my mom. Um, I remember all the time we'd go to the grocery store, he would have me calculate how much the sales tax was before the cashier rang it up and then would make them look, you know, just absolutely create or just shocked at when we give them the exact change before they rang it up. And so we'd just be giggling at the fact that it's like, oh, we were faster than the the cashier faster than the computer when it came to calculating those sort of things. So yeah, I I grew up as a tomboy more than anything because I don't know, I never gravitated towards the entire makeup aspect or like dressing cute and pretty and stuff. That was more my mom pushing that on me and my sister. My sister just grasped that and she loves that stuff. For me, I'm kind of like, 
Um, so what, what I gravitated towards was going into the garage and helping my dad out with the cars. I became a glorified flashlight holder. I was really good at that. And the, you know, helping my dad out with whatever it was like remodeling stuff, carrying stuff. They called me the mula, which is like the person that just like, I love like carrying a lot of things when I probably shouldn't be. Groceries, for instance, as an example, I do, I'm that kind of person that only wants to make one trip. So I'll put all the bags and cut the circulation off my no. arm. <laughs> yeah, I love cutting the circulation off my arm and potentially hurting myself versus taking multiple trips. That was me. And yeah, I loved learning. I would always ask my dad why and would be that person, would be that kid. And sometimes he couldn't explain it to me, but for things that were related to his occupation, he was able to explain those well. And same thing with cars. But my dad was a car mechanic and they owned an auto shop up there. So my dad knew the insides and out of a car and still does. And so he taught me a few things. Well, later on when he finally decided that, you know, I got a learn these things on my own. I can't be relying on a man to -hmm. do these things because let's, let's be real here that women are more likely to be taken advantage of, especially when it comes to automotive stuff, especially when it comes to more typically known as male dominated Mm -hmm. areas. Um, So he's like, I want you to know these things. So you do not get taken advantage of, especially when you're going to an auto shop, if somebody tries to give you a quote or tries to tell you something's wrong with your car to know to be able to question if that's the case and to to find those honest people that will actually be there to help you versus try to think that you're dumb or don't know things. Because I've had that happen before. My dad wanted to make sure I knew better. And I think when I was a lot younger, I got more of the pushback because like, oh no, this, this is like for the guys to do. And, you know, like change, you're going to get hurt. You're gonna, it's dangerous, all this stuff. So again, I became the flashlight holder and he would sometimes explain the stuff to me. Other times he would want me to do it, but then be like, oh, no, no, I'll do it faster. I said, well, I'm not going to be able to ever learn how to do it if you don't ever show me. So I constantly felt like I had to almost prove to my dad that I can do those things that are predominantly more male oriented. Um, I still get some pushback there. Uh, so it's constantly improving constantly, just learning how to do things that maybe aren't the most conventional ways and how to mold it to fit you. When you said something a couple of times that that really struck me was that they know what they know. And and in a sense, that could be a cop out of like, okay, well, they're never going to change whatever. But the way you said it didn't feel that way to me. It was it was very like taking meeting them where they are and even doing that as a child i think is really really incredible that you were able to kind of do that and recognize that in the moment because i think the way that you've described kind of your relationship with your parents and in your dad in particular is that there were very there were very good intentions in that and i feel like there's there's a lot of times there's a bad connotation with even saying good intentions because that implies maybe the wrong thing but i mean that in a very genuine way in that it it made sense to him to teach you about the car and when he thought more about it, he was like, oh, well, that's more of a boy's thing. But he gave you the space to push back. And whether he taught you to push back or not, you learned to push back in that moment because of your interest in it and everything. And I, and I can see that a lot in parts of that story. And, you know, with your mom, too, you get the math from her. And that's oftentimes considered a more boy area as well. And so even though they 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 only know what they knew, they still were encouraging you to be you in the ways that they knew how. And I love that you were able to to kind of recognize that 
at times while also recognizing some of their just generational knowledge at the time as well from a different culture and everything. What I was wondering was, it seemed to me like that might have been kind of a perfect way for you to prepare yourself to go into an engineering field that is male dominated for the most part, from my understanding. Mm -hmm. You know, gaining this kind of experience of breaking those gender norms with people that you're comfortable with and people that love you. Can you tell me a little bit about how that might have prepared you for having to break some of these gender norms as a professional or as a student and maybe some of those instances that you had to do that? Sure. In all of those moments that I'm thinking, like the first ones that come to mind, I was terrified. Yeah. I was terrified of standing up for myself because, again, there is a phrase in Spanish, te ves más bonito calladito, which means you look nicer when you're quiet. I got that a lot as a child. And I still, you know, would maybe that's why I had as bad of a temper as I did. I, I at least for education wise and everything, my parents would be like, you know, this is the opportunity that you all like we wanted to, for you and your sister to have this opportunity that we didn't have. But then when I reached middle school, I was presented the opportunity to take a higher level math course. Um, it was at the time most people were taking um, just pre, pre-algebra pre or some, I forget which one, but I was presented the opportunity to take geometry and algebra two in middle school. And I was terrified because I'm all, that's something that people do in high school. Uh, me doing it as a middle schooler, I was so scared. And my mom's kept on asking, like, are you sh-? like, she presented, she's like, I know you're capable of doing it. And I know this is, it sounds scary, but I know you can do it. And if, if it's too hard, it's okay. We could pick you out. It's like, what's the worst thing that could happen? And so I think that was probably the first time I was pushed um, at least that I can remember from the, uh, this moment where I was put in a position where I was uncomfortable, but it was an area that necessarily wasn't, you know, I guess age appropriate at the time for me. So there was a combination of both age, things that were I weren't wasn't technically quote unquote supposed to be doing for my age, and then also the gender disparity aspects came with that. When I got into college, so that's when I saw it like immediately because I didn't know what engineering was. I decided on engineering because I heard it was hard. I didn't want to do anything medical related and I didn't want to be a business major because I got that inventing, you know, life experience stuff from my dad and my upbringings. But I didn't know what that looked like in a major. So one day I was like inventing and math and stuff. What does that look like as a discipline? And industrial engineering came up. I said, all right, let's let's go into that and see what happens. And that's how I ultimately just stuck with it um, when I started college. As I got into the more advanced classes, I started, people think to this day that I was crazy for doing this. My first semester as a freshman, I was in calculus three, um, which is most people when they take calculus in high school, they're told to retake it again in college because of just the, the caliber of the material. It's different how it's taught and stuff. I convinced, this was again, me being out of my comfort zone. I convinced the pre-engineer advisor to let me be in Calc 3. It was my friend, Luis, that also helped because he was uh, already a student at Florida State University. I had met him at a math competition and when he was uh, graduating, I'd met him in 2012 and he's still one of my like closest friends to this day. 
And then he told the pre-engineer advisor, hey, this is going to be this crazy incoming freshman that's going to come up to you to say that she wants to take Calc 3. Let her. Because he normally didn't at all. He's like, let her. She competed in math competitions through Mu Alpha Theta in the summer for fun. She, you know, got a five, uh, which is the highest score you can get on an AP test, advanced placement test. She's most likely going to get another five on the Calc 2 one and find out this upcoming summer. Let her do it. So having that advocate helped out a lot going in because, again, he thought I was absolutely crazy for doing that. And same thing with all the AP credits that I did in high school. I was put in the advanced classes or didn't have those requirements uh, anymore in order to satisfy the um, what is it like the gen ed courses, the the weed out courses, if you will, of engineering. So then because I didn't have those, I was put in the more advanced classes. And that's when I started seeing, oh, shoot, there's only like 10 women in this class. And then I saw of those people in the class, like from a marginalized community, very few of us were like a sprinkle in there. And I'm all, oh, is this, I had the culture, culture shock of being in academia and also the culture shock of being, you know, from a marginalized community and a woman in STEM. So that was absolutely terrifying. I didn't know how to ask for help. Um, I was too scared to, because that's also, then that's where the upbringing stuff comes in of like, no, you're not supposed to ask for help. You got to figure it out on your own. So then that became a struggle for me. It was, it I struggled in undergrad. The irony about some of it was I had female professors in some of my courses, particularly one I remember very well, that told me if I was struggling in this class that I should just drop it right now. And I'm all, aren't you supposed to be uplifting me and like wanting me to be a woman in STEM? She was also Hispanic, which I was just looking back now, I'm so shooketh at the idea of her not wanting to help me like I told her I was struggling and I needed help just didn't help me at all and told me to talk to the TA instead and then just like oh well if you feel like you're going to fail you should just quit the class you drop out and that's just so surprising and I have seen that as well in my doctoral program too that there are women faculty members that have this uh, mentality of if you didn't suffer as much as I did when I was in college, when there was even less women in STEM and Hispanic women in STEM, then, you know, I have to make your experience as bad as mine in order for you to truly earn your degree, in order to, to, you, to truly earn your place in this society as an academic and stuff, which just blows my mind. I'm well, aren't you supposed to be sharing that knowledge that you had of things that you wish you wouldn't wish upon the next generation of Hispanic women in STEM, a next generation of women in STEM. And so that that just baffles me to this day. I see it still so much. I remember I was at the airport one time and I think I was wearing a shirt that said something College of Engineering on it. And there was a man that turned around to me. He's like, oh, you're an engineer. I would have never thought like somebody like you would look like an engineer. And I didn't really know how to take that. I was all like, is he just referring to my gender? Is he referring to that? I am not, you know, Caucasian. I I didn't know how to, I was just, I was in the line ready to get onto the flight. And I just didn't know. I was like, please, please, Lord. I'm not the most religious of people, but I was like, please, Lord, like make this 
hope that this person doesn't sit next to me because I don't know if I could handle a five hour flight with this person. Well, and that's the place where you don't want a conversation anyways. And so yeah. we have that sprung on you where like, oh, you do that? I didn't think you could. And, and it's just yeah. a double uncomfortable spot. Yeah. And, and also as a doctoral student, I get all the time mm-hmm. that, oh, you don't look like a PhD. And I'm like, what is that? What does that even mean? Or you don't look Hispanic. I'm like, what does that even mean? But, you know, the gender thing, I've, I would say I, I've seen about the same, both gender wise and then Hispanic wise, I've seen about the same level of just like, oh, you don't look that way. Or how the fact that I'm so social, um, mm-hmm. there is a misconception of engineers being somebody very awkward socially inept and just sticking to the books sort of thing and not really emerging at, outside of like having communication skills and such which there are people like that but i think there are people in every field like that i don't see it just in engineering and so then i i'm just always like oh well i guess i'm the the oddball i'm the black sheep here that is going to change that you know i had somebody or start telling other people the reason why I got an opportunity was because of the outfit I was wearing that day and because I had bright red lipstick on and that I somehow swooled all of the people there to convince them that I was the right person for the job because of that. And I will, wow, this person would share to other people. They viewed me so highly in all these different aspects of leadership and everything like that. And because I was an opponent against them for an opportunity and they didn't receive that opportunity was when they immediately switched their dialogue towards me. And I was just such in a state of shock when I heard that. I thought this person was an advocate of mine. And here they are saying something so superficial about me of just like my appearance was what got my up. never mind the qualifications I had for this position or this opportunity it was just I was so surprised and I find that interesting because it's, it's coming around again to the they know what they know and I'm listening to you describe how you have to decipher okay what is it that they know and they only know what they know and then what are their intentions and there's so much because of the position that you're in as the woman, as the Hispanic, um, you are the person who has all of these calculations forced on you that the other person or myself in a similar situation wouldn't have to do. And so it's heartbreaking for me in a way to think about all the processes that you have to go through in a conversation like that, that I would never even, that would never come to my mind because of just the way you look, simply put. Yeah, it's uh. I, my therapist, I, I overthink and analyze everything. And my therapist calls me out and is like, isn't that mentally exhausting? It's like, yeah, it is uh, being in a constant state of anxiety. I mean, there, with these approaches, there also is the anxiety of like, oh my gosh, if I approach this incorrectly, this is going to spread like wildfire of the, I'm going to be that person that nobody is going to want to interact with out of fear of offending me, out of fear of me pulling an HR card. And I don't want that, right? I want to be treated the same 
as everybody else. I want to be the engineer that just so happens to be Hispanic and a woman. I don't want to be the Hispanic woman engineer. And I don't want to be that person that anybody is afraid of because then, you know, it's not even the race card or the woman card that gets the the overall message there. It's that the, oh, Emily gets offended by everything or everyone. But we push that on women and we push that on Latinas as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then with Latinas, with women, if there is a moment where a boundary has to be set and the boundary has been violated and then there is an approach of that was inappropriate, you know, saying something like that, standing your ground or even bringing it up to HR, then word spreads that that person is a B word, right? Or she's just like, thinks she's all that. She's just an angry person, an angry, mad woman trying to remove men out of society and put them in their place and stuff like that. And again, it's like how you said, it's like playing chess almost. You have to like strategically figure out what your next move is because all of these things, there's just so many layers behind it, which is unfortunate, but I will say there is progress and change happening. It's slower in some fields, slower in some industries, because there is the box that you have to fit in. And so then I ask myself, how do you approach that situation such that it's an educational experience for that person to want to do better, for them to want to be, to want to be right to that person that they, you know, made feel uncomfortable or offended, right? You'll also have the people that are like, I shouldn't be having to educate them. Da 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 da. And I'm like, okay, yes, I do understand you shouldn't be having to explain to anybody these sort of things. But then there's also like the, but then if you don't tell them what they did wrong or anything, or how that made you feel, or how that was wrong, they're never going to know. If you just say, I'm offended. Right. What caused you to be offended? What did I do so I could better myself? Then you're kind of like stagnant. You're stagnant water. What do I do in that situation? And I've seen that before. And I just, I wouldn't want that for myself. The approach I take, is it entirely right? Maybe somebody listening to this podcast later is probably going to think otherwise. And I'm open to hearing suggestions. I'm open, like, that's just who I am. Tell me how I can be better, such that I'm better for myself. Maybe there's somebody saying that they'll give me advice on something that I've said that maybe, you know, has affected me. But then also, I'm not perfect. I'm not right all the time. How to be a better person, I... You know, I think it's open to listening and open to creating that interpersonal relationship with somebody. And that ultimately, I think, is what really changes the playing game, the game of how to influence people, how to not be stuck in a position where all you are viewed as is a certain way as being the Hispanic woman in engineering. Having that aspect is what I think really changes because we're all people. We all want relationships and we can't have those relationships with other people if there isn't that common ground, if there isn't that understanding. And, you know, the last thing that comes to mind too is the biggest advocate for you is the person that is invited to the room that you weren't invited to. And I emphasize that so much with people because I remember a a good friend of mine who identifies with 
three types of pronouns, she, he, they, was in a room that there was somebody that just said something completely offensive to them, but didn't have somebody there to advocate for them and was kind of just put in, I hate saying put in their place, but like just could not do anything. And I heard that and it just hurt me hearing that story. Um, the same thing with a friend of mine who was a conference organizer for the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers. I go into the bathroom and I see her crying hysterically. And I was like, what happened? And she told me, because it was at the conference was at a university. She told me that there was a woman that saw her in the bathroom and or rather saw her outside and asked her what she was doing here because it's a Saturday and the cleaning service folks aren't supposed to be here on weekends. And mind you, my friend, she's really, really brown. Her family has a lot of, she's from Mexico, has a lot of indigenous influences. And that just broke my heart. And that I wish I would have been there to shut this person up for mm -hmm. saying such a comment like that. That That is in a situation where, so she tried telling her, no, I am a conference organizer for this. The lady did not believe her and was going to call the police on her. To the, so then this person had to go to find the, the staff members that were helping organize this conference as well to prove to this person that she was supposed to be there. And that is just so, so unfortunate. That is an example of a situation that prompts the aspect of you are being blatantly racist and the fact that I had to prove to you this sort of thing is just, it just broke my heart. And I, I re recognize somebody with my skin tone probably wouldn't experience that. But I have, which is mind-blowing to me. I have experienced it at a grocery store. I have experienced it in multiple locations. And that's sad that I've experienced that. And I can't imagine how many times that happened has happened to other folks from marginalized communities for other women and stuff. Yeah, it's just, it blows my mind. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I wanted to ask, so for anyone listening who is more like me and has a different background where we are not put in a certain box because of the way we look or because of the gender that we have, and we don't have to break all these social norms, cultural norms, gender norms to aspire to the things that we want to do and to be successful in the areas that we want to be in. Speaking to those people, speaking to us, what do you want us to take away from your story? I would say to listen, to listen and to not be afraid to not know something. I would say, you know, do your best to try to understand the situation on your own but then also asking for guidance of how you can be a better person, I think is what comes down to like me talking about building those interpersonal relationships because that's at the end of the day, that is who we are. We are people, we need interactions with other individuals. We need those, those moments of connection. And in order to get that is to listen and to learn and to be open to things that you may have never heard of 
that question how you've thought your entire life, that questions something that you've believed in for such a X amount of time. And maybe somebody throws something that you've never thought about before and maybe changes your ideals or changes your sense of righteousness. I think that that is probably what makes the best individual, somebody that is willing to listen of course, there's going to be things that you disagree with. Of course, there's going to be aspects that, you know, at the end of the day, I still think that this is the route I want to go to. That's what makes me an individual. But when it comes to aspects of differing vendors, differing things of what can you do in those sort of situations, listen, listen. And then I think a common theme in my life is if it makes me uncomfortable to do it, but it is an opportunity to grow or to help somebody else out and you know even if it's not the best approach even if it's not perfect it's still going to do something you have good intentions in mind that it will do some good then do it I think we also hesitate to do a lot of things because of again the people getting offended because of so on and so forth but if you feel that you're doing it from a space that you've educated yourself as much as possible, that you think that this is wrong, then do it. Like if you see your friend getting yelled at because of we don't accept queers in this establishment or we don't accept people with tattoos, blah, 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 then do something about it. Then take the appropriate precautions. And but at the same time, that person is going to remember that you stood up for them, that you tried to do something for them. And I think that that's what makes a big impact that somebody cares, that listened, that cares, and that tried. Sometimes they won't be effective, sometimes they will. And so I think that that is how to be a better person. And speaking to those people who who may really resonate with your story, who have similar experiences that come from a more marginalized community and family, or they're the only woman in their engineering class. What do you want to say to them right now? Oh boy. I hate, I hate how cliche as it sounds, but you are not alone. I found the reason why I do podcasts like these, the reason why I put out my story, it's terrifying to me to put out my story like this because there were two people that told me it's two different things on two separate occasions. One, that my biggest downfall is that I am too kind. But they also told me it is one of my greatest strengths. And when I thought about that, I told myself that if I being kind is what is going to be my downfall, then let it be my downfall. Because at the end of the day, the world is like, there's so many bad things going on in the world, so much hatred, so many deaths, so many illnesses, so many different things that it doesn't take too much to be a kind person, to have empathy, to sympathize with the situation, to come with a good mindset in mind and to just ha- be hopeful for the world and that things will get better. I think that that's something that if you become hard and sour and bitter towards the world, that it, it just makes your life so much more difficult. And I know it's hard to keep a positive mindset. I'm I'm not going to be a hypocrite and be like, oh, my life is perfect or anything like that. I've had so many spirals downwards. I've had so many instances 
where I've, I feel this anger and hatred and that like the entire aspect, why is this happening to me versus somebody else? Why, 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 why? And then, you know, in those dark moments of where you don't feel like anything is going right, that you don't have any support whatsoever, in those moments to remind yourself that you still have you and there is at least one person in your life that cares about you, that cares that you exist, that values you and that they want you in their lives. They want you to be authentic and genuine. So that's what I remind myself constantly that there's at least one person and myself. Because in order to get through those tough moments, the one person that is always there with you is yourself. And how do you improve that relationship with yourself and stop the negatives, you know, mentality? I'm negative to myself all the time. I am self-deprecating. I do that all the time for now on my mental health mental illness, all of that stuff. I have all of that. Imposter syndrome is a real thing. Everything in the store. I am my biggest critic. And I know that I I do not give myself grace. I am working on that though. And that is the approach that what I'm saying right now. If you know you do something and, or even if you don't know you do something, go talk to somebody. Because Therapy honestly changed my life. It really did. I didn't think I developed this such a big level of awareness for things. Have I been good at acting upon them and, you know, implementing the things that I've learned? No, but I am learning and I am at least growing and understand why I react in certain ways, how to be when I'm in a position of I don't have anybody advocating for me, how I've received somebody I heard somebody speaking poorly of me behind my back, how I had a friend that, you know, just completely went full 180 on me, how all these, when all of these things happened, what you can control is how you think about it, how you digest that situation, how that influences you and your thinking and stuff. And that is what you can control. You cannot control something that someone said you can't control you know something bad happens to you whether it be you know a death of a loved one all of these things you know an illness hits you all that stuff unfortunately some of those things cannot be controlled but what you can control is what are you going to do about it are you going to let it just impact you and affect you towards the negative towards where you're spiraling down and that like it's just a bottomless pit of just no light whatsoever I think it's important to keep at least that flame alive. And even if it's flickering on and off every now and then, keeping that flame alive and reminding yourself that, yeah, in those darkest times, you can achieve and you can persevere and that you are still on this planet and you're wanted on this planet. And that in order to improve yourself, in order to recognize all of these things i i suggest going to somebody that specializes in these sort of things such as therapy psychotherapy there's all kinds of therapies that i learned as i you know started realizing that i needed to take better care of myself and that i can't be this constant endless loop of negative self-deprecating mental health spiraling and stuff like that. i needed to do something about it because that is not a way of living 
even when I overanalyze and overthink, I know that is an issue because I did exhausting, constantly thinking about everything, constantly thinking about every step, every action I need to take. So what do I do about that? And well, I talked to somebody and they offered different suggestions of how I can approach that. And while I am not the best at implementing them, at least I know that there are options. And one of these days I will, I will practice those things that I preach, you know, what I'm saying right now. I know I will because I always do. That is who I am. I know I always do something. If I say I'm going to do something, I will do it. If it happens in the next five minutes, if it happens like two years from now, that's, you know, that depends on you. (laughs) I am guilty of that, but it will be done. And I know that at the end of the day, good will come from it and that good things will happen despite bad things happening to good people. Good things will come and that they're keeping that flame alive more than anything, I think is something to remind yourself about. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for being so open and vulnerable with us and for sharing all about your story. I really appreciate you joining me on the on the podcast today, and I am really excited to be a part of sharing your story with everyone. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Emily Ann today. This episode is being released both here on the Ship Out Loud podcast as well as the Epics podcast. If you want to hear more stories that will impact how we're going to change the world, subscribe to the Epics podcast as well. I have two more ship members giving exclusive interviews there in the coming weeks, so make sure you don't miss those. Emily Ann, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Emily Ann's story will be one of the many testimonies that are a part of our upcoming series that starts this Monday and will be released weekly. Until then... You can always check us out on our website, ship.org, or our social media platforms. To become a ship member today, go to the website, click join, and enter the code POD22. And remember, you belong here and at every level of the STEM industry. Until next time, take care, familia. Ship Out Loud was produced by Epics Productions, where we create podcasts with purpose. Hi, my name is Alex, and I'm the founder of Epics. I believe that the foundation of hate and discrimination in our world comes from a lack of understanding of those who are different from us. Check out my show, The Epics Podcast, where we step out of our comfort zones to hear the stories of others so that we may better understand them and be a part of making real positive change in the world. New episodes drop every Friday. Go to epicspodcast.com to go listen and subscribe, or go to epicsproductions.com to learn more about starting your own podcast. And be sure to follow all the shows in the Epics Podcast Network to hear more epic stories.